Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. The coronavirus pandemic is playing out against a backdrop of great power competition between the US and China, and today we wanted to zero in on that. We've seen Beijing engaging in COVID diplomacy, sending masks and respirators to every corner of the globe, even as it engages in a massive propaganda campaign, hinting that the US may have been responsible for the coronavirus. The papers are awash with headlines talking about China's soft power play. But is this soft power? Today, we're joined by the man who came up with the term soft power, Joseph Nye, the former dean of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. His most recent book, published in December of last year, is called Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. We're also joined by Bates Gill, professor in the Department of Security Studies at Macquarie University, and Natasha Kassam, who is a research fellow in the Diplomacy and Public Opinion Program at the Lowy Institute. Welcome to the program. Joseph, let's start with you. Um, you define soft power as the ability to attract and persuade. Put crudely, I like what you do, so I'll do what you want. We're seeing commentators describe China's COVID diplomacy, coupled with a massive disinformation campaign, as a soft power push. But are we actually talking about soft power here? Well, China has been trying to increase its ability to get what it wants through attraction rather than coercion or payment, which is what soft power is, uh, since 2007, when Hu Jintao told the 17th Party Congress of the Communist Party uh, that China had to improve its soft power. Uh, they certainly have invested a lot in it. They're pushing hard on it. And this current face mask diplomacy, as it's called, is a major effort in that direction. I'm not convinced it's very successful. Remember, soft power is the power to attract. So it depends upon the eye of the beholder. And there are a lot of people who are not attracted by China or see through the face mask diplomacy. It has to be seen against the background of China's other behavior, such as the way it's repressing citizens of Xinjiang or the way it represses uh, uh, people in civil society. Uh, or the way it has territorial conflicts with its neighbors. So these are things which make China less attractive, and suddenly providing a lot of face masks isn't going to countervail that. In some ways, when I, I read your article, and I always assign it for my uh, for my classes, when you first came up with the term, it was a time when the U.S. had, had won the Cold War, in part on the back of having better ideas than the Soviet Union did. And now we live in the very different and in some ways darker age where there's misinformation and disinformation, where much of the focus is on demonizing your enemies rather than attraction. I mean, is sowing hatred easier and cheaper than developing a state's power of attraction? Well, information warfare is very longstanding, and propaganda is a very important part of information warfare. The problem is that propaganda is not very convincing. Uh, to If people realize that they're being manipulated, they don't believe it, they're not attracted. So I've sometimes said the best propaganda is not propaganda, or things that are overtly propaganda or seen as propaganda don't produce attraction, 
and thus they don't produce much soft power. I mean, Bates, I remember we did an event together a couple of years ago where you argued really convincingly that when it comes to China, there's no distinction between soft or hard power. It's just power projection. I mean, when it comes to COVID-19, do you think the pandemic is helping or hindering China's power projection? Well, I, I agree with Joe that a lot of the what, what passes for soft power, or at least the way people use that term, is really a, 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 an abuse of the term. Um, much of what is creating Chinese power or uh, influence in the world is actually through its hard power. It gets it by buying that influence, you know, through, through trade and other economic matters, uh, or it gets it simply because it's a big state and smaller states pretty much feel as if they need to do what Beijing is asking them to do. So in the case of COVID-19, I think the same sort of rule generally applies. They've, I think, suffered pretty mightily both at home and abroad because of the way the situation was initially handled. Uh, and the latest news appears, at least, that the uh, United States is going to more aggressively pursue this idea that perhaps uh, it originated from uh, a laboratory in Wuhan rather than the uh, wet market. So I don't see this going away very soon. And, and um, much of what Beijing was up to before, which I think we all kind of agree is not a very effective form of soft power, if it's even soft power at all, is continuing through the COVID-19 episode uh, and is, is really much more the same as I see it. So I guess the short answer to, to your question is um, I don't see China winning, quote unquote, from a soft power aspect of this crisis. So we've just seen these figures coming out saying China's seen its first economic shrinkage in 50 years with uh, the GDP figure down by 6.8% in the first quarter. Is that going to hobble its ability to project its power overseas? Well, it's certainly not going to help it. Uh, it's obviously a problem, but you know, China remains, regardless, the second largest economy uh, in the world. It has massive uh, economic levers that it can turn to. Uh, not least its its capital reserves, and it remains a, a massive market. Um, so I think it it retains a lot of the uh, advantages uh, which it had prior to COVID nineteen. It's just that it's going to be harder to see that restarted, uh, but it will eventually. Some of the biggest challenges China's facing going forward is um, uh, not so much its own domestic market, which remains large, and of course they could turn to a stimulus package domestically. Although that's risky, you know, given the high levels of debt they already have um, and the fact that they've sort of reached the sort of the end point of their capital investment phase. But more importantly is the um, external markets. I mean, um, you know, all the major economies that China counts on for its exports, whether that's Europe or the United States, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be recovering out of this for another, another year or so. So that's an added problem for them. And yes, I think it's going to hobble their ability to use those sorts of levers going forward in a, in, in, as a way of sort of gaining influence. I, I might add one more point. What COVID-19 is doing is accelerating processes that were already in motion, right? All of the economies outside of China, especially in Western liberal uh, democracies, had already begun talking about decoupling or diversifying, trying to find ways to be less dependent on the Chinese 
economically. This is going to drive this debate forward in rapid fashion. Um, and I think people are already trying to figure out you know, how they don't get themselves caught in this kind of a difficult situation due to its dependency on China again. And Natasha, if we could turn to you, I mean, Joseph made the great point that, that soft power is in the eye of the beholder. And some of the work that um, yourself and the Lowy Institute have been doing points to this. So while in Australia, trust in China has basically fallen off a cliff, according to your polls, uh, in other countries like Mexico and Turkey, um, people seem to be embracing, if you like, uh, China's own narrative. So, I mean, why do some countries uh, favour China over the US, as seems to be uh, what your polling is suggesting? I think that's absolutely right. And what is becoming quite clear to me in this conversation really is how relative all of this is. So, yes, China will take an economic hit out of this crisis, but what will it be relevant to all of the other countries that are still stuck in that crisis? For the countries that have always been, or at least recently been, suspicious of China, concerned about repression, all of the human rights abuses that Joseph mentioned, this crisis will only exacerbate those views. So like you say, in Australia, I would expect to see trust in China decline even further. But for other countries that are perhaps attracted to China's economic prowess, their state capacity, I think COVID-19 really presents an, more proof for them that China, China's system is actually effectively able to marshal resources in a way that other countries are not. And so I do think they'll be able to find proof in this crisis of that as well. So what you'll see, I think, is more divergence, particular countries moving more into China's orbit and others that are increasingly sceptical. The other problem is, of course, the United States has not exactly proven itself to be very competent in this crisis. And so young Australians, for example, from 18 to 29-year-olds, they trust the United States even less than they trust China, and I think that is only going to worsen. Mm. Oh, there's a really interesting demographic split there. And I mean, do you think this COVID diplomacy is working? I mean, sort of the webinars we're seeing in Africa um, on how to fight the COVID virus um, in the Pacific and elsewhere, um, the mask diplomacy sending, you know, ventilators and so forth. Um, I mean, do you think it's really, do you see signs that it's working? Look, I, I do think on some level it is. You know, Joe is right, the best propaganda is not propaganda. But in some countries, I don't think we should underestimate the value of having teams of medical professionals sent out, having essential medical equipment sent to you. In the Middle East, in Africa, China has incredible local resources and language capabilities that they are now able to marshal to deliver seminars. We've seen many reports of, you know, officials across the South Pacific attending um, online seminars on how to defeat COVID, these things can really make a significant contribution. And again, by contrast, right now you can see the United States blocking PPE exports at its border. So I really wouldn't underestimate the value of those kinds of moves at the moment. Yes, I was really struck by a piece that I read um, about how successful China's uh, actions have been in the Gulf states it quoted the um, foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates, Abdullah bin Zayed, was talking about how China is the best example for how in these trying time, how these trying times will pass by through collaboration and solidarity. And it talked about this kind of bilateral um, two-way flow. So when China was having trouble in Wuhan, the Gulf states were sending aid. 
And then recently, when the Gulf states are dealing with COVID, China is sending masks and respirators and test kits and, and all of this kind of stuff, but matched with this quite um, extreme sort of rhetoric from public figures. And I just wondered, is this a kind of pandemic tributary system that, that's emerging? Bates, I wonder whether you had a, any thoughts on that. Well, again, these relationships and economic and trade connections were already in place you know, even before the COVID-19 crisis struck. So obviously, it does provide the, the necessary channels and relationships that would, would be in place for China to take advantage of the situation and to really ramp up, you know, not just simply deliver those goods and, and demonstrate collaboration. But where I find it so remarkable is the way that it is now sort of broadcast and made more widely known globally. Um, I would say that if, if, if we can point to sort of a success story in all this for China, I think they're going to come away from this all the more convinced that the decisions they took in the past two or three years to allow far greater use of social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, which of course, ironically enough, are banned inside China, um, but are allowed for use uh, by a growing, growing, rapidly growing number of diplomats, uh, other government um, officials, of course, uh, state-run media figures, uh, and uh, others are making this incredibly uh, exploded uh, use of these social media platforms. Um, I mean, I, I was looking at some data which generated by the uh, German Marshall Fund and their Securing Democracy program. I don't know if you've seen their website called Hamilton 2.0. They've documented a tripling in just the last year, a tripling of the number of Twitter accounts uh, which are now in use by Chinese officials and uh, state-run media personalities and, and journalists. So while they have certainly increased the, let's call it face mask diplomacy, what's really interesting is how they've increased the um, awareness of it through the use of these um, more uh, modern social media platforms. I mean, based what you're talking really uh, about is information and th this link between information and soft power. And, and I think it's been understood that part of the US's attractiveness is this openness and transparency to, to new ideas and, you know, the, the sort of transparency of information. I mean, how is this changing now that you have an authoritarian power making use of the very tools that, that made America attractive? So I would say you often do see slight shifts in sentiment towards countries based on leadership, but this is not a normal time and certainly not a normal president. So, for example, trust in the United States was still quite high in Australia, even under George Bush, who was disliked by the majority of Australians. That is not the case today. And I think this speaks to, perhaps in the past, unpopular presidents in allies like Australia being seen as somewhat of an aberration. I think there is real concern in, the, in Australia and in other allies around the world that what we are see, seeing now is a new normal in the United States. There is still an opportunity for that to course correct in some ways in November this year, but I think a second term of a president that is as unusual as President Trump would reinforce and perhaps fundamentally alter the way that Australians and other countries see the United States in the long term. 
I also just wanted to add something quickly on that earlier point, if that's okay, which was um, about the Chinese use of social media and the way in which that's shifted. Something that I think is particularly interesting about the way that we've seen Chinese officials take to social media is a real tactical shift in terms of almost adopting Russian methods of throwing around conspiracy theories, being very critical and aggressive. In the past, I believe Chinese officials and Chinese social media generally was seen as quite a controlled, limited space. There wasn't very much room for creative interpretation, and they were very much restricted to particular central directed narratives. I really see that moving now. And the way in which these conspiracy theories have been floated and then taken away, just trying to muddy the waters rather than actually change someone's mind. To me, this is really reminiscent of Russian disinformation efforts. And you can see already Pew polling shows that 30% of Americans think that the virus was man-made in some way. I mean, I think that's quite a stunning number, uh, given what scientists are telling us. I, I agree with what Natasha said about Trump being a very unusual president. I, my book looks at all 14 presidents uh, since 1945, and there's none like Trump. I mean, we have many presidents who've lied. Uh, Roosevelt lied. Johnson lied. Uh, but the Washington Post did a study of Trump's statements, and their fact-checking department showed that in the first thousand days that Trump had been in office, he had told 15,000 lies. Uh, whatever you say about lies of previous presidents, they never accomplished a record like that. The problem with that is it debases trust. Uh, if you lie all the time, then your lies are much less effective because people expect you to lie. And Trump has debased trust in himself and also in the United States. So it's not too surprising that young Australians would have the view that Natasha mentioned. Um, on the other hand, I, I suspect that the Americans can recover from this. I'm, I recollect that in the period of the Vietnam War, uh, when American policy was wildly unpopular around the world and people were marching through the streets all over protesting the United States, they weren't uh, singing the Communist Internationale, they were singing Martin Luther King's We Shall Overcome. Now there's an anthem that grew out of our civil society was the means of protesting against American government policies. And what we can say is that despite the problems that Trump has created for American soft power, governmental soft power, the civil society is still quite strong. I mean, Trump, criticizes the World Health Organization, threatens to withdraw American funds. At the same time, Bill Gates gives $100 million to the World Health Organization. So I suspect that after the Trump era, which I hope will be not too long from now, uh, the, uh, uh, the American soft power can recover as it did in the 70s and 80s following the Vietnam debacle. I mean, you've written a book with the title Do Morals Matter? If you were to judge Xi Jinping by the same yardstick as you're looking at the last 14 American presidents, would you judge him to be a moral leader or not? No, I, if you look at both Trump and Xi and their reaction to the 
uh, initial stages of the corona crisis, both of them started with denial. They then moved to cover up, to censorship, to trying to prevent information coming out. Uh, Xi then used his authoritarian capacities for clampdown uh, more efficiently than Trump did. But then they both moved from there to propaganda. I don't call that leadership. I call it, or I don't call it moral leadership. Every country has to defend the national interest. That's, uh, that's what leaders do. The question is how do they define the national interest? And that's where the moral element came in. And uh, so go back to my Marshall Plan and Truman. Uh, Truman defined the national interest as something good for us, but good for others as well. Uh, neither Trump nor Xi is really taking that type of position. Face mask diplomacy is too thin and transparent to pretend that it's a Marshall Plan, and Trump has failed the test entirely. Uh, surely we don't think that Xi Jinping imagines this is a Marshall Plan. I really think the objectives here are just so distinct. I, I mean, for China, this can just be a relative gain. They don't need to win hearts and minds. They need to be minimizing harm for their own system at home, highlighting incompetence of the United States. I think the ideal end state is increased skepticism of US leadership and elites that feel beholden to you and perhaps ambivalence about China's role in COVID. Why wouldn't call it moral leadership? It's simply tactical leadership. That gets us back to the point we were raising earlier about whether this is or isn't soft power. I think Natasha and Joe are really zeroing in on an interesting point here. Is it soft power if your primary audience uh, that you're targeting is actually not international societies and elites abroad? Uh, it may not even be your own domestic citizenry. Um, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that the primary target of what we're seeing in all this so-called soft power is the party itself. It is uh, a, an attempt to remind party members, uh, reassure them uh, about Xi Jinping's leadership and um, first and foremost, feel good about themselves. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's something John Fitzgerald, who's a scholar here in Australia, has referred to as a sort of self-regarding or narcissistic aspect of the party, which is reflected in almost everything it does. Um, so, I mean, that's a question for Joe. You know, is it soft power if who you're trying to attract uh, is your own uh, authoritarian party? Well, certainly not international soft power, but right. remember, if soft power is the ability to attract, to get what you want, then attracting the party elite to stay loyal and to support you is a soft power. Uh, in this case, is directed inward and not, as you said, Bates, not to everybody, but to the particular people you need most. It's a very narrowly targeted soft power. Yeah, I mean, I don't dismiss that, that the aspects of their activities do hope, in the best case, to attract uh, external audiences. I'm sure that's a part of it. I just don't think it's the primary part of it. I agree. I mean, Joseph, we seem to be in this 
somewhat strange moment where not only does the leader of China not want to be like us, as we assumed with previous administrations, um, but you have the leader of the US publicly expressing fraternity with dictators, um, you know, from Brazil to Hungary to North Korea, and even wanting his own inauguration to look like North Korea's mass games. I mean, and how does soft power work at the, the elite level if the masses, if you like, no longer have a call um, on their on their leaders? Well, soft power, again, has to be thought of in terms of who your target is, because what it's about is attraction. And something that attracts one may repel another. I've often uh, argued that American soft power uh, uh, may attract... Uh, I mean, if you take a Hollywood movie with women divorcing their husbands and practicing law, uh, that may be very attractive in Brazil and totally repulsive uh, to people in uh, Saudi Arabia. Or within Iran, it may be very repulsive to the Ayatollahs, but attractive to the younger generation who watch videos at home. So soft power depends on attraction therefore depends on the audience and what attracts one audience may be repulsive to another and one of the interesting questions for leaders is what's sometimes called the two audience problem what attracts at home may repel abroad and uh, uh, vice versa so i i think the uh, i think what bates was saying about xi jinping is these statements that the Chinese are making may be very important for attracting cadres to stay loyal at home, but they may be a really basically a laughing stock in Australia or the United States. And I wanted to pick up on that and ask you, Natasha, because I noted that the was it the Lowy Power Index actually had China ranking above the US when it comes to diplomatic influence. If through these, this kind of face marked diplomacy, China, um, I mean, is it really devaluing all the attempts? Because over the years, we have seen this sort of slow and steady attempt to reach out to other countries, particularly developing countries, you know, with aid and non-conditional aid and all kinds of blandishments and help as well. Do you think COVID might end up undoing a lot of that? Uh, I think, honestly, it is early to say, but I, you know, the Lowy Institute's Asia Power Index that you mentioned, uh, it does track changes in the distribution of power across hundreds of metrics. And certainly what we see in Asia is that China does better than the United States on economic resources, on diplomatic influence, on future resources. But on most of the measures of soft power that we're talking about, it doesn't do as well. And that is because I think, as Joe mentioned, billions of dollars spent on CGTN and Xinhua has not really turned into um, those sources being relied upon by most people in Asia. That is different, however, in Africa, for example, where CGTN's coverage, I think, is basically unrivaled. And China is expanding this year in our global diplomacy index. We saw China has more overseas posts than the United States for the first time. And so that diplomatic reach, I think, is so broad and goes quite deep into various societies with significant populations also. You know, there are parts of the Pacific that have really significant communities of Chinese people that have been living there for a very long time but are still connected 
to the People's Republic. I don't think COVID will undo a lot of that work. There will be hiccups along the road, but in the end, there has not been any other power that has stepped up to assist some of these countries. So even if you have test kits that are failing or some masks that aren't working, these are going to be blips and they won't be remembered well. But I think in the biggest scheme of things, uh, for a lot of countries outside of this region, there will be recognition that China was there to assist when others weren't. And, I mean, the face of China's assistance, interestingly, is uh, often Chinese companies. So in Vanuatu, for example, um, it's CCECC that's delivering all of the uh, masks and the respirators. Uh, and this is an implicit aspect of soft power, you know, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's Coca-Cola, it's about the appeal of American companies. I mean, are you seeing in your research um, that some Chinese companies are starting to burnish their brand and tell China's story well, in Xi Jinping's words? I really think that it differs depending on the audience. And that's a really important point that Joe made earlier that I agree with. So you see uh, Chinese companies delivering products to Serbia and Hungary, and their leaders are inspecting the warehouses, calling Xi Jinping a brother and a friend. When those same companies are delivering products to Australia, they get delivered late at night, no fanfare, no embassy receival at the airport. So I do think this is more sophisticated than maybe we give it credit for. The companies themselves, I don't think, have such a strong brand yet. And I'm not even sure that that would be a part of the plan in the idea that companies, particularly some of these state-owned enterprises, they are seen as instruments of state power. They're not meant to have individual identities in many ways. I once was asked by a very high-ranking Chinese official to have a private dinner with him in which he asked, how could China increase its soft power? And I said, first of all, try to resolve some of these territorial disputes with your neighbors. It's hard to be attractive when you're claiming their territory. But the other thing to do is just relax at home, uh, ease up, let companies do things, let civil society take more risks. Uh, if you did that, you'd be hard to beat given an economy your size and a culture as attractive as yours. And uh, of course, that was advice which was totally useful because it ran against their necessity of tight party control. You know, I think that, that that really, for me, is is the nucleus of the whole problem for Chinese soft power. Because ultimately, it is about, I think Natasha said this at the very beginning, it is about sustaining a one-party state. That's what it's ultimately for. And as long as that's the case, uh, and, 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 and it supports a system which, as we know, has all sorts of other aspects to it that are quite distasteful to, to, to millions, if not billions of people around the world. As long as that's the basic conundrum, I can't see how Chinese soft power and the way that we're talking about it will ever work. Uh, influence, yes. Uh, leverage, absolutely. Uh, you know, ability to get others to do stuff that you want them to do, yes. But that's hard power. And, you know, quite frankly, I think the Chinese leadership is fine with that. <laughs> you know, um, as long as soft power works in, for them as, in the way we've already mentioned it, that is, targeting that primary audience at home, then that's fine. 
If the rest of the world wants to make fun of it, that's fine too. And they'll go about it just the way they've done it all along, precisely because at the end of the day, it's about the party and keeping them where they are. Um, I agree with that. The, the thing that comes top of Xi Jinping's mind and other leaders is to keep party control. But I have a feeling that uh, that you're the China expert, uh, not I, but they also want face. They also want to be seen as attractive. They, if, since they want to be loved, unlike the, the Russians who seem to care less, uh, the Chinese do want international affirmation or appeal and so forth. So I think you're right that the first priority is party control and it's the, it's the attention at home. But my feeling is that China does care more about its international reputation than the Russians, for example. I don't, you're you're the expert. Tell us the answer. I think I think you're right, too. And I think you know, in, in in a perfect world, yes, uh, you'll have party control and that affirmation and approbation uh, of the international community. Um, I just think getting there is going to be very very difficult. They certainly they would surely like that, and I think uh, that is why in recent years. The messaging coming out of uh, Beijing, both at a very senior official level, but also, you know, in just conversations you can have with with friends and uh, colleagues there. Um, it's basically, uh, you know, you have to accept us. You, you know, I know you don't like our form of government, but, you know, you really need to respect it and ultimately accept it. That's what you must do. Otherwise, you know, uh, it just won't be good for for the international community and, and so forth. So there's, and we see, I think, in the in the context of COVID, uh, how are they getting at that point? Well, they're saying, yeah, state capacity, effectiveness, we did the right thing, uh, and we've demonstrated, right, uh, that our form of governance uh, is the best in terms of getting on top of stuff like this. So you're right. They, I think there is a greater degree of them uh, wanting that sort of affirmation and approbation. Uh, I just think it's going to be very, very hard for them to achieve it. And, and one thing I always wonder about um, soft power, um, there's this scene in The Princess Bride where the hero says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I mean, Joseph, does the rampant misuse of your most famous concept by governments of every political stripe ever frustrate you? Uh, and, and do you ever think it might be time to retire the word? <laughs> well, it, it does frustrate the most common use or misuse is people treat anything that's not military power as soft power or alternatively they'll say economic sanctions are soft power that's nonsense that's economic sanctions are a form of hard power so yes i mean if soft power is attraction rather than coercion or payment it's very commonly misused i still think it's worth keeping the distinction because it, it there is a very big difference between getting what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment. So I, 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 when people ask me that question, I say, you can give birth to a child and you can be frustrated by what the child does later, but nonetheless, you can say, here's what the child is supposed to be doing. Now, finally, just to kind of round it all up, Joseph, I think you've talked about how power can be a positive sum game, but when it comes to China and US, in fact, at the moment, it kind of looks like a negative sum game where nobody is really benefiting at all. I mean, who, if anyone, is benefiting from COVID-19 when it comes to power projection and what 
do you think a post-COVID world would look like? Maybe you first, Joseph, then Natasha, then Bates. In this new book, I argue we have to distinguish between power over others and power with others. And there are certain objectives we have uh, which you can only achieve with others. And climate change and coping with pandemics are perfect examples. U.S. and China produce 40% of the world's greenhouse gases. Uh, we can't solve that alone. China can't solve it alone. If we're to avoid the damage done by that, we have to do it with China, not against China, and with other countries as well. And the same thing is true with pandemics. Obviously, we can go on with this question of uh, the competitive propaganda of who did better. But if there's going to be a second or third wave of the pandemic, as there was, for example, in 1918, where the second wave of the influenza killed more people than the first wave, we should be working closely with China to understand the conditions which led to the first wave. And we should also be joining with China to make sure that third world countries too poor to cope are not becoming reservoirs which will overflow and re-swamp us. That would be power with. Unfortunately, both the Chinese leadership and the American leadership are focused almost entirely on competitive power over who came out ahead and how well we dealt with it. That's nonsense, but alas, that's the way we've seen things so far. But there is a meaningful distinction, and I would hope if we changed leadership in the United States, we might be able to get back on a track, which uh, you saw on some of the early presidents that I mentioned in my book. Uh, so I would say that right this moment, the success of China's soft power efforts depend as much on Washington and other governments handling this crisis as it does on Beijing. The own goals that I would say have come out of the United States have been really damaging in this respect, you know, calling it the Chinese virus, defunding the WHO, calls for reparations. These help China's cause, I would say. And rather than talking about the United States and the attraction of its values, I really worry that today people think of the United States and focus more on institutionalized discrimination and a broken healthcare system, corruption and the military industrial complex. These are forces, as we say, that could come back depending on the way things go, but I am worried about the way in which that is progressing. And so I think the post-COVID world in terms of where we see Chinese soft power efforts what might be the kind of greatest success would be that rather than soft power being about the attraction of values, it might be about the attraction of competency. <laughs> and that is not to say that democracies can't do this. I mean, look at Taiwan or New Zealand, but the largest democracies in the world have been crippled by internal conflict and bureaucratic incompetence. And I think that is going to be a lasting effect we'll have to deal with. The only other thing I would say about the post-COVID world is I think early on, Joe said that countries are going to be looking to decouple further from China, and that's already happening to some extent. The trade war was pushing that process along. But I do think that if China comes out of this earlier than everyone else does, which already looks to be the case, 
Most countries are going to be deep in recession, if not depressions. I'm not sure that governments are going to be in a position to be choosy and to consciously avoid the world's largest market. So I really think there are going to be counteracting forces that possibly reinforce a lot of economic dependence on China. Well, I think, you know, who's, who's winning the, uh, the COVID war of words uh, and influence? I, I agree. I believe it's China. But I would not attribute that to soft power. The reason China's winning is, I would say, twofold. First, their incredible capacity to leverage the very attributes of a one-party state uh, in a way to deliver resources abroad, uh, to be on message so powerfully across the numerous platforms that they have internationally and domestically. Uh, those, are, those are not really... Uh, I wouldn't call them soft power attributes of China, but rather attributes of, let's yeah, state capacity, which may have an attractiveness to some. But uh, again, it's it's really all about again at root what it what it really is is state capacity of a one party authoritarian state. And then the, the second the second reason is what the United States is doing. So again, that's not China's attractiveness. It's just the bungling and mishandling of all of this by the United States, which again, was well underway. Uh, the bungling and the mishandling was well underway before COVID struck. Uh, and it's just simply exacerbated and accelerated. It was already a frightful mess uh, in Washington in terms of American soft power. So yes, China's coming out on top of this, but I would not attribute that victory, if that's the word, uh, to their soft power. It's, it's to other elements of this entire equation um, that China's been so able to take advantage of. They couldn't do it without our help. <laughs> so maybe we are cooperating. <laughs> Unintentionally. <laughs> Joseph Bates, Natasha, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed Thank you it. for having us. Many thanks to our guests, Joseph Nye, Bates Gill, and Natasha Kassam. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Background research by Julia Bergen. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.